Today we're going to be talking about eelgrass. Many of you probably know it as the black or the green stringy stuff that washes up on the beaches. Perhaps you've collected it off the beach for garden compost or mulch. Perhaps you put it on your head and pretended it was hair. That's my personal favorite. But there's much more to it. Gwei, hello, and welcome to Udan, Our Living Ocean. I'm your host, Brian Martin, and today our topic explores the wonders of eelgrass. Today's special guest is Dr. Christina Border, and she's a postdoctoral fellow in the Future of Marine Ecosystems Lab at Dalhousie University. And there, they look at how climate change is impacting marine ecosystems, and that includes biodiversity, fisheries, blue carbon, and more. So let's get to it. Christina, thank you so much for being here with us. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for the invite. It's an exciting opportunity for me. Um, if we get right to it, what's the deal with eelgrass? Is it a grass? Is it a marine plant? Is it an algae? Do eels eat it? Let's, let's kind of start with what it is and where it grows. Well, I'm obviously biased, but I think eelgrass is one of the coolest plants that is out there. So it's um, there's about 72 species worldwide. They are called in the group of seagrasses. But the one we have up here most common is called eelgrass. Um, the scientific name is Sostera marina. And it's really the most common around here and grows as far as north as Greenland. So wow. it's really resilient, yes. And so this is a type of seagrass and it's really the only group of flowering plants in the ocean. So really like the grass we have on land, it, it flowers underwater. And it's not an algae, so not like the rockweed we see often, um, or seaweeds, so it's really a plant. And it grows all along our shores, so it likes shallow bays um, with, with sandy bottoms it can really root in, but you can also find it further offshore in shallow areas. And just to give you an idea, um, some of these eelgrass beds are so dense they can be seen from space. So oh, wow. this is really impressive on some of the, the satellite photos. And uh, yeah, as for the eels, um, it's probably disappointing, but it's said that <laughs> eelgrass is uh, named because of its long um, eel-shaped like um, blades. Um, many other seagrasses are rather short and stumpy, so this one is really the elegant version. But the good part about it is the American eel that is around here and appreciated by many uh, can in fact be found in the eelgrass. And I've seen it several times, seen them several times snorkeling um, in eelgrass and always greatly delights me when, when I bump into them. And I have to agree with you. It is such a magnificent plant. I also love it. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk about it with you today. Um, and, so it is a marine plant, like you said. What's that? And obviously it's great to, dec obviously it's great to decorate your hair with. <laughs> Everybody loves every, that. Every time we're down. Every time we're down swimming. <laughs> Um, so it does grow in the ocean, in salt water. Does it grow, you, you mentioned that it grows in shallowish waters. So does it grow in the, the intertidal zone? Can it, be, can it tolerate being exposed to air? Or maybe it grows in kind of deeper waters as well, or somewhere kind of in between? Do you want to talk about kind of the depth, depth range that it grows? Um, yeah, so it can reach up to the intertidal, but it generally doesn't like to fall dry. So um, it's it's a very soft grass, so it like bends with um, with the tides, and you can often see at low tide um, the 
the blades just like swimming on the surface, but it generally does not like to be exposed to air. So anything that you see exposed to air, usually on, on rocks, is usually rockweed, so algae, or which is commonly confused um, further out, um, salt, salt marshes. So that is a different type of grass, also salt tolerant but not usually submerged the whole time. So if it sticks out, it's not an eelgrass. <laughs> right. So unless you've got but, like a supermoon, that's about it. Yes. Like really, yeah. really low tide. Okay. Yeah. So they, they really don't appreciate being exposed to air too much. And uh, so they, they generally grow in areas that um, are, uh, yeah, covered in, in, in salt water most of the time. Sometimes they can even tolerate a bit of brackish water. And then they grow to into uh, deeper waters as long as there isn't too much um, yeah, disturbance and water movement and, of course, enough light for them to grow. Right. And we'll get back to that. I know that eelgrass is incredibly important as part of the marine ecosystem. You mentioned you've seen eels swimming in it as well. Um, and that's at least in the relatively cold waters of the North Atlantic, including the Gulf of St. Lawrence. I've seen it here the Atlantic coast off Nova Scotia and at least parts of the Bay of Fundy. We'll talk about why it doesn't grow in all the areas of the Bay of Fundy a bit later, but what are some of the roles that eelgrass may play in the ecosystem? So that is an excellent question because eelgrass really is one of these super cool ecosystems that does so much, but so few people know about it. So it's to start with, it's one of the most productive ecosystems in the world. So it really does a lot and it delivers what is called ecosystem services. Right. So these are services that ecosystems provide to us that we directly benefit as humans. So, for example, much like trees provide oxygen, um, one square meter of eelgrass can generate up to 10 liters of oxygen per day. And wow. I don't know if you know that about every... The oxygen we breathe in about every second breath actually comes from the ocean. So this is a really important part of it, but not the only benefit for, for humans that eelgrass beds have. So it also improves water quality. It filters out uh, nutrients and um, traps sediments. It protects the coast from erosion, which I think is a really important feature that's often overlooked because it uh, reduces the power of the tides and the waves. And it's also, which I think is, is one of the, the most important features, it's called a biodiversity hotspot. So much like forests or meadows on land, it provides really important complex habitat for hundreds of different species. So especially young ones and juveniles of like, for example, for fish and crustaceans can, um, can hide in the eelgrass. The adults spawn there because the, the young can find cover and protection. And a lot of species also feed and, um, and hunt in the eelgrass between all these dense blades. It's really like a, a little jungle down there. If you like right. dive or swim through it. Yeah. And uh, so amongst them are, for example, lobster. Like if you, if you swim through any eelgrass, you're, bound to bump into lobster right. um they're usually less pleased to see you than you are <laughs> but <laughs> um so yeah the, there's lobsters and of course crabs but also juvenile fish such as herring salmon and a lot of flatfishes um, right. can be found in the eelgrass and um so eelgrass often is the nursery habitat for these species before they grow big enough to leave the protection of the eelgrass and then swim out into the ocean Right. So, 
um, it's such an important habitat for these kind of species, and especially fish, that uh, DFO has actually declared eelgrass as an essential fish habitat to recognize okay. this importance and the role it plays um, for many fish stocks, which then ultimately, of course, um, benefits us through um, the fisheries. And um, next to also the role it plays for, for climate change, um, all these benefits, while they're really often really hard to quantify and put a dollar value on, like what dollar value do you put on the clean water you have or the, the air you breathe? So impossible. it's impossible. It's really, really hard to do. But uh, scientists have tried and have estimated that uh, eelgrass beds are worth about 20,000 US dollars per hectare per year. Wow. So for those who aren't certain, a hectare is 10,000 square meters. So 100 meters by 100 meters or about two and a half acres. So that comes to $2 per square meter per year in terms of value. So, and this is just the benefits they provide. So this is more, one of the most valuable ecosystems we have worldwide. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, a lot of these benefits often only become clear when we lose them. And yes. that is an important thing to consider. I like that you brought in, you, you mentioned... Um like a meadow, like a meadow on land, because that's exactly what I pictured then. I pictured, you know, a meadow with all these small little animals, birds in it versus someone's grass that's cut or after a farm field has been cut where there's barely anything left, right? So it, it kind of really draws that mind picture for from a land-based perspective. And it's exactly that just underwater. So when it yeah. disappears, we have a barren, um, often nothing because it's sandy ground and algae can't grow on sand very well. So right. it really needs something that has roots, and that's the that's that's seagrasses, or in our case, eelgrass. So if it goes, there's usually just a sandy bottom left. And you mentioned a little bit about climate there. Um, blue carbon is a bit of a buzzword right now. Can you tell me a bit about what <laughs> what blue carbon <laughs> is and what role eelgrass might play? You've kind of touched on it, but if you kind of want to elaborate a little bit more. Yes, so blue carbon indeed is a buzzword at the moment. Um, I think that's because it's fairly new. Um, a lot of times we talk about a lot of concepts on land because we're land creatures. Yes. So this is where our focus is. This is where we think the important stuff is. Never mind that more that the majority of our planet is ocean. But uh, yeah, so ocean topics and the role of the ocean in um, many, many different... Um, uh, context such as climate change is only starting to be recognized and this really is where the concept of blue carbon popped up over the last I would say maybe five to six years that it has gained increasing traction that researchers are realizing the role of the oceans in drawing down and also releasing carbon especially with global climate change and um, ocean warming and acidification so blue carbon refers to all the carbon that is interacting in some way or other with the ocean. And this is something we are just starting to study here for Nova Scotia. And eelgrass plays a big, big role in that because it's actually one of the world's most effective ecosystems in drawing down and storing carbon. So really it's a secret weapon in the fight um, against climate change. So just to give you an example, um, 
one acre of of eelgrass in this case can store about 330 kilograms of carbon per year. So this seems a fancy number, but what does it mean? So I took that and calculated that into emissions for a car. So this car could travel more than 6,000 kilometers to emit this amount, which is more than the distance from Halifax to Vancouver. So this is what the, what the eelgrass can do for us. And if you compare it to ecosystems on land, for example, a forest, one hectare of eelgrass can trap as much carbon as at least 10 to 40 hectares of forests. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. When, when we talk about like, um, uh, replanting forests and climate change and such, of course, replanting forests is great for many, many reasons. Yeah. But we are to- totally overlook <laughs> the, the actual elephant. <laughs> yeah. The actual elephant in the room, which would be the, the, the eelgrass or the, the seagrasses. And as such, it's one of the top three, um, uh, carbon rich ecosystems next uh, to things like a tundra, for example, which is often um, also one of the, the ones named in, in these kind of context. Right. Um, so we, we do have, we haven't talked about climate change a whole lot. Um, as we mentioned, just, as I mentioned just earlier to you, um, I do have plans for it, but that's okay. Um, we are seeing warmer waters. We're seeing acidification. We seem to have more large storms. And oftentimes what I, I'll see eelgrass, dead eelgrass up on the beach when there's these large storms, like right now. Yeah. <laughs> Although, <laughs> we've got a bunch of ice out there right now. Um, and on top of that, we've got marine pollution and runoff, either from nutrient loading or siltation. We've got dragging. We've got aquaculture, which can lead to shading. This is a plant that needs sunlight to grow. So tell me, how is eelgrass doing right now? Now that we know how important it is, how's it doing? Now that I made you fall in love with it, I have bad news on that yeah. end. Um, I mean, the, the good. Let's let's start with a good message. We're realizing the importance. So the um, protection is more in the forefront, and um, we 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 know it now. So. That being said, eelgrass and uh, seagrasses worldwide are not doing too well. I think you already presented a very comprehensive list. They are under a variety of stressors, um, all human-made. So in many coastal areas, of course, um, physical disturbance is a big problem. So this could be through boat anchoring or through destructive fishing, such as bottom-touching gears, such as trawling and dredging, um, um, or also to sometimes lobster traps being dragged through through eelgrass and these can heavily damage the beds and kind of create gaps in them where wave action then can get at the root systems and start to erode erode the beds so this is something that should be avoided at all costs and then of course um, you mentioned it especially for species growing in northern colder waters Um, warming waters are a big big problem due to climate change this often goes hand in hand with uh, diseases that are being introduced that can thrive better in the warmer waters. Like any other um, living creature, um, right. eelgrass can also be affected by different diseases. Um, deteriorating water quality is a big issue. So this right. can come from all kinds of sources. So this can be nutrients, fertilizers, pesticides, which can come 
for example, from aquaculture, um, open pen farms in the ocean, but also from dense coastal populations, sewer systems, and then, of course, runoff through rivers that carry um, nutrients from agriculture further upstream. And uh, this, again, um, causes a lot of problems for the, the eelgrass because this overload of nutrients um, can, can harm or like cause um, overgrowth. And then, of course, we also have invasive species that cause, right. a, cause a big problem for the eelgrass, such as the infamous European green crab. And all of these things combined really is, is hammering down on the eelgrass. It's, it's a really, really stressed ecosystem. And I think it speaks to its resilience that we still have it. Um, but it is unfortunately estimated that globally we lose about two football fields of seagrass each hour. Wow. And uh, that, that we've already lost nearly a third of the, the seagrasses globally in the last century. So that is, that is not good, but we know about it now. That's certainly not good news. But like you said, at least we do know what we are up against. Now, let's expand on that European green crab, Carcinus minus. How do they actually affect eelgrass? They're, I know they're becoming a very big issue here for, for various reasons. How do they affect the eelgrass? Yeah, it's unfortunately, every time you swim or snorkel or dive in eelgrass, you see them. Mm -hmm. They are everywhere. I usually give them the stink eye when I see them, but they, <laughs> they, they don't mind that much, whereas I'm happy about every rock crab I see. Yeah. But, I mean, it has been around for about two centuries now. It's introduced with, with ships, and it's here to stay. We're not going to get rid of it anymore. Um, and... What it does is it likes, it likes to dig. It likes to dig and it feeds on the eelgrass beds and unfortunately does so by ripping out the eelgrass or like cutting and clipping the blades to right. get at uh, critters and, and things on it. So it disturbs the, the root system, it rips out the plants and of course thereby kills the plant and erodes the bed. So researchers have looked at um, the impacts these um, European um, green crabs have by um, using exclusion experiments uh, with cages underneath right. and have found that under high crab densities, so what they had as more than five crabs per square meter, which is not unheard of. So um, wow. uh, I don't think we're quite there yet, um, but uh, we're definitely approaching that. Um, and under these high crab densities, they found that uh, more than 17 eelgrass shoots can be lost per meter of eelgrass bed per day, just wow. due to the green crabs. So that doesn't sound that much at first, but if you think about like how active they are and how many there are and yeah. having that spread over like the whole density of the bed, like basically having ripped out, having these shoots ripped out constantly, of course, puts enormous stress on the bed. And, and that's just one thing too. Yeah, exactly. That is one thing about amongst others. And so in areas where um, they studied eelgrass, um, it's, it's often hard to just pinpoint it and say like, this is the green crabs. Because, um, as we just spoke about, there's a lot of other stressors. Yeah. But just for an exa or two examples, in a bay near Portland in the, on the U.S. East Coast, researchers found a 55% decline of the eelgrass beds they studied within uh, 10 years, which um, largely coincided at the same time that the population of green crabs really took off in that area. 
So um, that is that's a really unfortunate um, finding. And also, um, there's a lot of research going on in Kechmikutik Seaside um, okay. on on that. They have lost a large percentage of their eelgrass down there too. Um, why is probably a combination of factors. But to my knowledge, over the last years, they tra- they had a trapping program for the green crab, at least to lessen that stressor to a certain degree. And uh, yeah, as far as, as I know, they, they caught a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. I know here as well in Basinhead, they, it's unbelievable then the amount that they can catch in a couple of days. Yeah, and, and they are around everywhere. So just maybe as a funny side story that uh, someone told me, um, because there's some... Uh, Invasive species are a problem everywhere. And so because we like to eat fish, um, there's some chefs that came together and founded uh, programs that ran under the title of Eat the Invader to, okay. <laughs> to make it more um, interesting and maybe make it a marketable source to keep the populations in check. Um, this was mainly focused on uh, lionfish, for example, in the Caribbean. Yes. Yeah, you may have heard of that. Mm-hmm. So um, a friend of a friend who's a chef down on the east U.S. East Coast uh, tried that with green crab, um, which is not commonly a species we eat. No, but he found out that you can actually eat them when they mold. So when okay. they when they change their shell and they are soft, but then they right. tend to hide. So you really need to go looking for them. And right. he co- he collected a bucket of, of soft green crabs and brought it home and decided he wants to fry them up in a beer batter. So <laughs> he made me a beer batter <laughs> and then um, proceeded to heat some heat some oil and dip the crabs in the beer batter and tried to put them in the hot oil. But the pot he was using was not very deep. And of course, oh, the no. crabs weren't having it. So, oh my gosh. Yeah, they jumped out of the pan, uh, these beer batter covered um, crabs and started to um, do their crab thing all over the kitchen and eventually oh <laughs> escaped. And remember, they were covered in beer batter. So and they, oil. And oil. So they got everywhere. Like he said, his dog was really uh, happy about the, <laughs> the new game. But wow. it, it took him a significant amount of time to just like track them down and they got like under shelves and such. And uh, yeah, his wife was not too pleased when, when she came home. So <laughs> he said oh those, those he actually managed to fry um, weren't worth the effort. So oh, um, <laughs> I knew they were tough little buggers, but that is something else. <laughs> yeah, wow. they're fast. They're fast too. But he said he kept finding them for, for days after when they just yeah. pop, popped up and or the dog found them. So it would probably still a waste to, if if so, to market them in, in any way. But maybe that can serve as a cautionary tale. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, let's go back to sunlight a little bit and how it does relate to some of the pollutions, one of the, some of the pollutions that we've, we've just talked about. Um, so as we mentioned, eelgrass grows underwater at all times. It doesn't like being dry. So in the subtitle, not the intertidal. And obviously it needs a light to grow like all plants do. So here, at least in perfect conditions, that's about five meters. So 16 to 18 feet or so max, kind of maximum. What happens when we introduce nutrients or silt, especially silt, I guess, or or high, um, gosh, like zooplankton mm-hmm. um, blooms? Yeah, I think... blooms. <laughs> <laughs> Not zooplankton blooms. 
Um, yeah, both both have kind of the same end effect that um, they reduce water clarity. And as you just said, like the more um, sunlight eelgrass can get for photosynthesis, the better because it needs it needs that to grow and thrive. So the lower the water clarity, the higher the turbidity, for whatever reason, the harder time the eelgrass has. So this can be through direct introduction through sediment like silts or, or soils, which can often happen through like storms, for example, and rivers, which is the natural part. So if that isn't too often, they can, eelgrass can deal with it. It's a hardy plant. Right. But in addition, um, this can um, often also be introduced through human activities along the coast, such as construction, building of seawalls, infilling, um, and also um, activities that, that touch the bottom, bottom such as uh, bottom um, trawling, for example, that suspend right. um, sediment. So that um, and um, so it reduces the efficiency uh, for photosynthesis, but it also can smother the eelgrass directly. So by really settling on it and um, covering the the eelgrass blades themselves, and right. to a certain degree, of course, the the eelgrass can withstand that. But with many many things, the dose makes the poison, and as we just talked about. The increased frequency and intensity of these kind of events, um, reducing the water clarity and quality, stresses the eelgrass. And this is, of course, in addition to all the other stressors it's experiencing. Yes. So it's stacking one thing on top of the other. And if it's already uh, eelgrass that's already um, affected um, by other things, then uh, it's much more likely to, to suffer serious consequences. Right. And as I mentioned earlier, the parts of the Bay of Fundy don't have eelgrass and especially the inner, the inner Bay of Fundy. And that is a natural reason that there wouldn't be any there is because of all the silt um, that doesn't allow light to penetrate down deep enough. And also because <laughs> the <insane laughs> at, high tide, at high tide, there's 50 feet of water over top of them. Yeah. The Bay of Fundy is not a good habitat for eelgrass. We probably never had any there. Probably never will. So. Yeah. I guess only near the mouth. In, uh, in certain areas. Yeah. Um, now, another issue that we kind of touched on is too many nutrients, which is certainly happening here in PEI, where I'm situated. And that can lead to excess growth of sea lettuce, the Olive lactica. Um, and that's a type of seaweed that essentially can smother the eelgrass, cuts the light. And also, when the sea lettuce decomposes, it can lead to anoxic conditions. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Um, yeah, nutrient pollution is a big issue um, everywhere, but I think like PEI is a good example with extensive agriculture and uh, probably nutrient input through through that. So um, any type of um, kind of human interaction on land that, that involves nutrients um, that can eventually reach the, the ocean through the interconnectedness of the, the land and the coasts and the ocean uh, can pose a problem. So nutrients are discharged in a variety of ways, like directly through rivers um, and, and other means. Um, but generally, the, it depends on how, how well flushed the system is in the first place. So how quickly the nutrients can be distributed and carried away. 
But as we mentioned um, earlier, um, eelgrass tends to grow in shallower areas that are not that um, that don't have that much of a flow through, so it's not that disturbed. So this, these tend to be areas where nutrients can accumulate, and um, that, uh, as we can also see in lakes, really favors the growth of any ta any species that can quickly grab these nutrients and make use of them. So sea lettuce is one example. Um, others are like stringy filamentous algae and these algae really can make use of these new nutrients very fast and grow and they but they need somewhere to grow on because they can't just float so right. um, hard substrate is really prime real estate in the ocean <laughs> so um, and eelgrass is a substrate and so these um, algae attach to the eelgrass and start to grow on the eelgrass blades and eventually can overgrow the eelgrass, not only shading it, but also leading to faster decay. And this really, really stresses the eelgrass because it's being smothered and eventually um, also le um, leads to die off. And when you dive or, or snorkel in an eelgrass bed that is under heavy nutrient stress, you can immediately see that, like the vibrant green that the eelgrass usually has is somewhat dulled. Um, the blades are overgrown with this kind of looks like a bit like like a slimy um, okay. kind of um, uh, substance, which is usually the filamentous algae. Right. And uh, yeah, and then also, of course, you can find a lot of a lot of the the sea lettuce. Okay, um, let's look at the big picture now. Let's zoom out a little bit. What happens if we continue to lose our eel beds? I don't even want to think about it, but. What do you think would happen if we if we start losing more and more of these? We would certainly be so much the poorer. Um, just like if we if we're being selfish for a minute, that we lose all the benefits that the eelgrass provides. Of course, we will have a lot fewer species around our coasts uh, because they have no habitat to to hide, to feed, to spawn. Um, so these species will ultimately disappear. Um, which can translate into reduced catches. Um, most direct one would be lobster, but then also, of course, translating through the food chain because a lot of these species are prey species for other species. So we've seen right. um, fisheries collapse when eelgrass beds disappear and um, never recover, actually. So that is a very direct one. Then, of course, coasts can erode much faster and much quicker. Water quality can decline. And this is just the direct consequences. Um, then there are so-called knock-on effects. So effects on other ecosystems and other areas that we're not even really sure yet how, how that could, could um, happen. But um, for example, when some of the species that are associated with eelgrass disappear, this of course will inf impact other species and other ecosystems. And uh, yeah, we're just starting to to study these and understand what what consequences might be in store if we lose the eelgrass. So let's try to keep it around as much. Absolutely. As possible. <laughs> um, so so what can we do? What can what can our listeners do in our everyday lives to help protect this ecosystem? So that is a very good question. Um, Learning about eelgrass, I think, is the first point, and that's why I'm very happy to be talking about yeah. this. And I've been talking so much about eelgrass because I love it, and most people don't actually know about it. Like, they've never heard about it. Yeah, you're right. 
Because you can't see it. You can't see it. It's like that's like often the problem with ocean topics. Um, it's under the waves, so it's out of sight, out of mind. And only by introducing people to it um, that um, they can start to appreciate the many wonders and uh, benefits. So we yeah. started to take people snorkeling in eelgrass beds, and okay. um, that that is certainly something where I love to see the wonder of people, just like wow, <laughs> yeah, um, swimming through there, and it's like like a yeah, like like flying through a forest, um, but but you're in the water, and like these fish pop out, and the lobster comes along, and. Um, you, you can discover things. So if one knows about these things and understands their importance, I think one starts to cherish it more and be more careful and more of an activist and a steward for it to protect it. And I think in everyday life, this can translate into a variety of ways that people can be mindful of what they are doing along the water. So this can be um, for people who own um, seaside property, for example, how they treat their gardens, um, if they right. construct seawalls or infill, these kind of things. Um, then, of course, be mindful about uh, what type of fish one consumes. So with regards to aquaculture, um, that can be one point because aquaculture is known to, to impact uh, coastal ecosystems. To clarify here, not all aquaculture, but some. See Season 1, Episode 7 for more on that. And um, another direct way would be for the boaters out there to be really be careful around eelgrass with their props, but also when anchoring. Right. So yeah. really dropping anchor in um, areas that are sandy, make sure the anchor doesn't drag, and then also, when possible, um, prefer to moor to buoys or other types of mooring. Or really, um, yeah, try to target areas that do not have seagrass because um, oftentimes um, uh, swimming in these eelgrass beds, you can see long scars through the beds where anchors have been wrecked. And right. that is really unfortunate to see because that is really something that can be avoided. Right. And what else can what else can we do? What can governments do or groups that do marine work? I know here in PEI, there was a group that was planting marum grasses to help restore the sand dunes. Can we plant eelgrass? Is that, is that a possibility? Or is there something else that, that, um, that marine groups can do? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's plenty. And I think uh, the dunes are a good example. That was also an ecosystem that was long disregarded to be there and not of specific value until it became clear um, what benefits it has with regards to erosion, protection and these things. So people have started to be careful around dunes and replant um, the species yeah. necessary to keep the dune in place. Um, and with eelgrass, it can be pretty much the same. Once seagrass or eelgrass is gone, it's not coming back easily. So let's be absolutely right. clear on that. Um, it's not like you replant a forest. It's much more complicated than that. So we can protect areas from disturbances to help it regrow to some extent. So as long as there is still eelgrass present, because it spawns and it reproduces, so it can regrow if it's not stressed um, beyond a certain point. And some nations are working to replant it. The UK, for example, has a, has a program on that. And we've started to look into that for the Maritimes region. I know a group in Newfoundland has been working on it. And I think a group in PEI, too, has, uh, is looking into it and has started to, for example, collect um, shoots of beaches after storms and transplant okay. them. 
but this really takes time and it's insanely costly. So just to give you an idea, restoring one hectare of seagrass was found to cost an average of about 106,000 US dollars. Wow. So this is about 10 to 400 times more expensive than at any terrestrial ecosystem. Wow. And okay. success rates are generally lower because there are so many factors to take into account. Yeah. So while it's possible and has been done with some success, it's very labor intense, it's very costly. Um, so I guess the bottom line is protect it while we have it. And around the Maritimes, we're incredibly lucky that we still have a lot of very healthy eelgrass beds around. And we're working with the with DFO and, and the government to better recognize these. So as I already mentioned, DFO has already declared it as essential fish habitat and um, is doing a lot of research around it. And I think the realization of the importance of eelgrass in the context of climate change really gives the whole thing a new, new importance to it and a new urgency that... Um, now it's being discussed that um, eelgrass needs to be put under protection just um, because of that merit alone it deserves it. And right. uh, yeah, so pushing that um, locally as well as, as on, on uh, provincial and federal levels, supporting that and then I think like also really keeping an eye on your local eelgrass beds. Um, I think um, makes sense that um, that's something we can we can all do. Right. And, and actually, because you mentioned climate change again, I just thought of this now, but I forgot to ask how far south um, within like the, the coastal or the Atlantic United States does eelgrass grow? Uh, and what I'm getting at here is with warming waters, how warm can we get before we have kind of a collapse of, of the system? Do you, do you know offhand? Actually, not. That's a very good question. I know it grows down the U.S. eastern shore, uh, eastern coast, um, but it gets taken over by um, other species. So, right. um, eelgrass is really bound to the colder waters because that's its niche. Um, we only have another one other here, which is like fairly rare. So, eelgrass really is the champion of the north for right. for northern um, northern coasts. So. There will always be waters that are accessible for, or like suitable for eelgrass to grow. But of course, like so many other species, it gets pushed north and it, at some yeah. point it can't go any further. So, um, that will leave our coasts bare, um, of it. And, uh, yeah. Perhaps a different type coming in. If, if it gets replaced by, by other species is yet open. I don't know if there has been any, any studies yet on how, um, seagrasses move. But um, that being said, there are so many stressors that add up that uh, they might not even get the chance to take root. And then they will also be associated with a whole different range of species. Right. So this would be what... Hopefully I never see yeah. a manatee here. <laughs> yeah, that is not... <laughs> like we, we already see so many tropical fishes popping up. And while it's to a certain degree still unusual in a novelty or like... Um, happens through through a variety of ways, they are moving north and um, pushing other species like the lobster up. And um, yes, as soon as we reach something that's called an ecosystem tipping point, um, there's no going back. So to clarify here, an ecosystem tipping point is when a particular ecosystem or like a type of habitat can no longer handle any more change. And the system as a whole will suddenly shift from one state to another.
So in this case, once the temperature gets to a certain point, parts of the habitat might change enough that lobsters simply can't survive. So then yeah. it's ir irreversible and we just have to really um, accept that one is lost and something else might come in place. But how this is going to act and react and what benefits for us this is going to provide or not um, will need to be found out. Right. Um, what have I missed here? What do you think our listeners need to know about eelgrass that we haven't talked about at this point? Um, interesting facts. I personally learned um, uh, that eelgrass was uh, or is um, a very cherished habitat for the Mi'kmaq in the Maritimes. Um, right. Hunting for eel. <laughs> so there, yeah. there we're back, back to the beginning. And that many communities, especially around the Rador lakes, um, still, still do so. Um, and, uh, therefore uh, the, uh, the eelgrass beds have a, have really long, long tradition, um, which I wasn't aware. And yeah, I think like overall, really the word needs to be spread about this amazing ecosystem and uh, yeah. there needs to be more decorating of hairs. <laughs> <laughs> I will keep doing it. I promise. Yes. <laughs> and when you go out, especially around like midsummer, um, it's also often interesting because it's something overlooked commonly is to look for the flowering shoots and um, yes. the, the shoots with the seeds later on, because they are pretty cool to see. You can actually eat them. Um, okay. They don't, I would not recommend it on a regular basis because they're not that good. <laughs> <But> <laughs> and it's often, they do sometimes wash up and you see what looks almost like fish eggs on the bottom, right? So that must be... Yeah, they're like embedded the in the blade. So only yeah. certain shoots become reproductive shoots. So the flowers are mm -hmm. admittedly rather unspectacular, but yeah. <laughs> they're like green, whitish. And, and only underwater you can see that they have like a structure. Um but uh, yeah, the shoots are like little peas in a pot, but just in like within yes. the, the, the blade and you can actually pop them out and eat them. They are a bit like a pea, I would say, taste wise, okay. but um, they can actually be a source of nutrients, but people don't commonly eat them and I wouldn't recommend it on a larger <laughs> scale. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is something um, everybody I show has never noticed because uh, yeah, this is like one of these details and in all the flotsam and jetsam on the beach often often drowned out yeah well christina thank you so much for your time i really really appreciate it you taking the time to talk to us about eelgrass today i appreciate to be able to talk about eelgrass thank you very much <laughs> well there we have it that concludes our episode for today let's do our best individually and collectively to protect this sensitive and very important habitat if you have questions or you want more information on eelgrass or any other ocean related topic please feel free to contact me until next time, we'll all go. Injured well, anchoring and lying low. Injured well. Executive producers for the Don, Our Living Ocean series are Roger Hunka and Vanessa Mitchell, with the episodes produced by the Maritime Aboriginal People's Council, narrative and editing by your host, Brian Martin. Today's special guest, Dalhousie University's Dr. Christina Border. The song Broken Reed in English, written by George Edward Chevery, performed by Colin Johnson, translated and performed in Mi'kmaq by Aldern Catherine Sorby. Production support provided by the Government of Canada, specifically Transport Canada's Indigenous and Local Communities Engagement and Partnership Program through Canada's Ocean Protection Plan. All rights reserved. It's a healthy wind coming to heal your water world.
Storms of.